Things changed quickly in football. After two Premier League games of the Eric Ten Hag era, Manchester United looked like a smoking ruin, aside with problems in every department. Fast forward a few weeks and four straight league wins. Suddenly, the Red Devils look a lot more dangerous. But a clash with Manchester City and their time-travelling android Erling Haaland is always a great test of where a team is at. So what truths will be revealed at the Etihad on Sunday? I'm Kevin Hatchard and this is Football Only Better. Talking of time travelling, you could grab a copy of Grey Sports Almanac, hop in the DeLorean, and you still wouldn't be as good a tipster as Mark O'Hare. Mark, did any of that make any sense to you? Not really, but no, hopefully I didn't it's think positive. It, I didn't think it would. It is positive. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Mark, City are 1.39 to win this. You could say, great Scott, and look at those prices again. That won't make sense to Mark. Uh, is that too short, 1.39? Because United have improved. City, obviously, Haaland has been incredible. But there seems to be a little bit of fragility in there. And uh, United have bloodied City's nose a few times in the Guardiola era. Yeah, I don't think it's too short. I, I think it's fair enough. I think we've got to assume that both teams put on their, their best performances. And if that is the case, Man City are still significantly better than Man United. Although I do take your, your points there. And there is always a, an element of caution when you approach Man City in these kind of environments. But, um, you know, the fa- the bare facts are they're a point off the top. They're unbeaten, averaging 3.3 goals. Erling Haaland's been ridiculous already. And, you know, things are going relatively well. And we all know that they've probably got another level or two to to, to improve by. Um, they could and probably should be doing better at this early stage. I think that's fair enough, considering uh, Newcastle and 10th are the highest placed opponents they've come up against domestically. And, you know, if you look at the game against Dortmund, it was, you know, pretty um, uninspiring for large parts and, and as was their performances against Palace and Newcastle and Villa as well where there's been frailties and this weekend it looks like John Stones is going to be missing too so I guess the the big boost is uh, Laporte should be back fit and available which is um, could be a like for like really and, and Walker and Cancelo can play at full back as well so Chuck in Diaz and suddenly the back four is looking pretty strong um, but uh, yeah I mean I think this is a really interesting game from a United perspective, just to see how far they really have come under Ten Hag, because you know they've four wins from four. Uh, they've only failed to score once under his tutorship. Um, they were pretty smart in their win over Arsenal, but I think most people kind of came out of that game thinking actually Arsenal played pretty well, and perhaps the, the final score was a little bit harsh. Um, you know, the, the last half hour basically got away from them really. But I think. You know, United are probably going to follow a similar blueprint to what they've done in, in previous trips to the Etihad, which is, you know, they'd be foolish to kind of go out and attack City from the first whistle. I think they will try and utilise those counter-attacks and transitions. They've got plenty of pace, plenty of ability in forward areas. It's an area that's worked well for them against City in previous head-to-heads. It's an area that's worked well against City in previous matches already this season. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm starting to, to like the look of, of United, particularly since Varane's come into to Barton and Martinez. They've looked solid. Uh, I think Martinez is a great reader of the game and a really good at uh, passing range as well. And Varane is the leader with the physical attributes to to cover as well. And, you know, when they've been partnered together, United have won every game. They've kept three clean sheets and conceded just twice. Um, Ericsson is starting to find his feet in that new look midfield. Uh, Anthony's contributing or, or contributed in his debut as well. So there's a lot to be positive about United, but this is... Biggest test of all, really, going to going to City. And yes, they've had success in the past, but um, um, I still think City, at their best, are, are still the best team on the planet. So um, to go back to the first question, I don't think City are too short. I think they're fair enough at the price. Um, if I was to be getting involved in this match, it would probably be something City-based. Uh, I wouldn't back them to cover a, a one-and-a-half goal handicap, but I still think they are the likeliest winners in what should be quite an enjoyable game. It's just a, a shame that Michael Oliver's been given the whistle again. He's, uh, he's quite a kind of low-cardy sort of referee. He's done this derby, I think, six times, did both of last season's meetings. He doesn't often get the cards out too often. Uh, you kind of hope for a bit of spice in these fixtures, but um, he's very much one to try and keep a lid on things. So um, I think City win, uh, but by how much, I'm not too sure. There you go, Mark O'Hare actively campaigning for violence there in the Manchester derby and nobody on the show is surprised about that. The professor of punting, Jason Murphy, is with us, a purveyor of history, philosophy and mathematics when it comes to putting a market or a tip together. Jason, we never make any secret of the fact that you're a Manchester United fan on here. It's my first chance to ask you what you think of them under 10 hogs so far. A mixed picture, isn't it, really? It was always going to take a while to get them to play the kind of football he wants. But I guess the most important thing is it does seem like he has the authority to make those bold calls when it comes to who he's going to select. If he wants to leave Ronaldo on the bench, he can. He's already binned Luke Shaw, it seems. Malassi has got that left-back spot. So, you know, that may change, of course. Shaw is a very good footballer, but he's making those bold calls. Yeah, steps steps in the right direction, and similar to Potter at Chelsea, like I said, we we need to give it a couple of months before you know we judge Ten Hag on anything that he's produced. But he's definitely making calls that are fair enough in my book. Like um, last year, he's he's got the jersey at full back. He's been playing well. He deserves to keep the jersey. Uh, I wasn't blown away as much as others when Ronaldo signed for United. I felt that Cavani would have scored the majority of the chances that Ronaldo would have scored in the United team and probably contribute more in other areas of the pitch. Whereas the markets last year when Ronaldo was left out, you were seeing significant price moves in the United price, but I don't think that happens now. So the markets agree with Ten Hag as well, that if you leave Ronaldo out, it's probably overall, you'll get a better performance out of United as a unit. So he's making the calls. That's what needed to happen. You love the stories about dragging them in for the run after Brentford, doing the run with them as well. So taking all the right boxes there. Coming off the back of the four wins though, not fully convinced by what we've seen at this stage yet. Yet they've scored seven goals in those four games. They've only conceded two, but the XG was much, much closer, like 5.74, five goals against. And if you look since the start of the season, United have gone on favourites in five of the six games, but they're actually negative XG goal difference across those six games. So it's still a work in progress. And when you consider what they have to come up against on Sunday, I'd be similar to Mark. I think the City price is okay. City have actually, if you can say this, have actually underperformed given the run of fixtures that they've had versus market expectations. It does um, feel that way, doesn't it? Yeah, this is not the city that we have come to expect, really. 
But they are slow starters sometimes, aren't they? That's, you give them that as well. They're only warming up like Ruben Diaz to come back into the back line and, and Haaland is scoring you know, plenty as well. He's he's catching the headlines, whereas you know we might have been saying, geez, a draw against Newcastle, a draw against Villa. It's you know If you're at the business end of the season, you're getting those results. Or when Liverpool have pushed them close in title races, if those results happen in March or April, they're catastrophic. But start of the season, you're kind of like, okay, it's fine. Uh, but for this game, for this Manchester derby, I think City to win is just a little bit short, but when City do win against United, their last six times they've beaten United, they've beaten them by more than one goal. So I think if you wanted to back something that was match odds based, I'd, I'd have a look at Man City minus one at 10 to 11. I think that's a fair enough price. Um, if you're looking for something in your bet builders, um, Scott McTominay to be carded, I think it's a very, very fair price, 15 to eight. He's committed 22% of United's fouls since the start of the season. He's picked up four yellows. And he's committed over a fifth of their fouls. So when far. he's on the pitch for the fouls that have been committed, absolutely, yeah. He's wow. uh, he's very proactive. I think that might be something to do with a kind of a Casemiro-shaped fire that's been lit up his backside. That he's, you know, that can <laughs> that can make players make mistakes. You almost feel like I have to be so proactive because this yeah. lad's waiting to come off the bench that he can actually be over-eager in the tackles. So that's another reason to back it. He got booked against Ireland last week, which means he didn't have to play against Ukraine, so he should be fresh. I expect Ten Hag to start him in this game, stick with the winning 11. So 15 to 8, McComney to get booked. Four cards already this season. Hopefully, you know, Doc will be saying, great, Scott, when he does get booked. <laughs> there you go. You see, Jason knew what I was talking about. Uh, the dashing doctor of data. We'll see you now in for goals, Jake Osgathorpe. Back from holiday, poised like a coiled spring, raring to go. Jake, how do you attack this Manchester derby? Yeah, just echo pretty much what, what the guys have said. The only thing I would slightly disagree with is that the, that they've, you know, they, they have underperformed based on the fixtures, but the performances have warranted them winning every single match they've played so far this season. You know, you, away at Newcastle, they, yeah, they conceded 2.3 expected goals, but they racked up nearly four expected goals. So they should have won that game you know, four three three two whatever. But they did look very shaky for spells of that game against Newcastle. Sam Maximan caused them all kinds of problems defensively. Uh, you know, d- there were definitely gaps there. I, d- I know they obviously they're always going to rack up chances, but th- that Newcastle game, I, th- I think they were quite pleased to get away with what they did. Yeah, I mean, game state plays into that one somewhat because I think they were yeah. behind, weren't they, and they had to come back, but. Um, still, if you create nearly four expected goals in a game, generally you win the match because you take the chances. Um, and they, they didn't on that occasion. And it was the same against Aston Villa. You know, Villa, when they drew 1-1, Villa racked up just 0.26 expected goals. City racked up 1.8. So again, a very wide margin in terms of the, the quality of chance created. Uh, and that all boils down to the, the averages, which is 2.44 and 0.76 uh, expected goals for and expected goals against. That's this season. That's actually an improvement on what we saw from them last season uh, based on the underlying process. And I'll caveat this, that this is early. This is not taking into account the, you know, the, the schedule's been fairly kind on them, as we've discussed. They've not really played anyone uh, of any real stature just yet. Um, but still, the signs are really good, I think, for City. to The, the, the main question mark we had pre-season was... How's Pep going to fit Haaland into this style of play? How's he going to get the best out of Haaland? And how's he going to get City to keep playing the, in the same manner they are? And, and it seems to have been a seamless fit. Um, City are creating loads of chances and Haaland's the man who's in the right place at the right times for, to put the ball in the net. And um, So I don't have any issues with, with, with City, how they've started the campaign. I think, as you said, generally they are slow starters, but from what I'm seeing on the underlying numbers, 
no reason to be concerned. And, and if they carry on the way they are, they're, they're, they're going to win this Premier League title at an absolute canter, um, similar to a couple of years back. And, and it will be a no contest. In this game, been imp- impressed with, with the eye test from United over the last four matches, but the numbers paint a completely different picture. Um, I think as I think Jason alluded to it slightly there, that, that they've won the matches the last four games, but the, the margin of the victory in terms of expected goals has been pretty negligible. Um, they've been really fortunate to, to scrape a couple of wins together. Um, even in the games away at Leicester and at Southampton, the, the level of dominance just wasn't there um, to, to warrant a, a, the victory. And even against Liverpool, you know they were impressive against Liverpool, weren't they? In which they, they, they got went about them and, and got after them. But the XG totals were very even in that game. And it's the same with Arsenal as well. So none of the the wins that United have put together have really stood out and and been right. Well, that's a serious performance. They've all they've all come either rather fortuitously um, or you know really really via clinical finishing. Um, and that's something that you can't really rely upon. And that ultimately is why. Infragol has them sitting in the bottom half when it comes to expected points so far this season. And defensively, I still have major question marks. I know that they've looked more solid um, since the switch to to Varane instead of uh, Maguire uh, and Malassia coming in, but they're still shipping over one and a half expected goals against per game over the course of the season, um, which has to be a concern when they head to to, to Manchester City. So I, I just I agree with Jason. I think that that City covering the handicap is a, is a potential angle. I also think that. As, we've, as you alluded to earlier, Kev, that United do have the attacking players, the likes of the Antonis, the Sanchos, uh, that can specifically hurt on the counter-attack. I thought Man City to win and both teams to score was a was a runner at around 6-4. You can probably get a bigger price on the exchange when the market becomes available. Um, yeah, I, I think that City will win this game fairly comfortably, but I think it's United have enough to, to cause City's back line some issues. And Jason, there's a brand new market, isn't there, for this game? Uh, that uh, punters should be aware of. Yeah, so we're we're offering player passes markets, so you can back a player to have thirty plus, fifty plus, seventy plus, or ninety plus passes as singles or in in your bet builders for this for this Manchester derby. Um, we you could have a look at Rodri, um, kind of centre midfield, City heavily position possession based team. He had ninety eight passes in this fixture last season. For him to have ninety or more passes in this Manchester derby, you'd get ten to eleven. Um, Ericsson has been a massive, massive signing for United. Yeah. The, the upgrade in that midfield that they've needed since, arguably since Paul's goals. Fifty plus passes for Ericsson in the game, you could get six to five odds against there on that. So there's definitely plenty of options to have a look around. Forwards will have less passes, obviously, than defenders. But you can have a look in the thirty plus markets if you fancy something there. Haaland have a couple of passes, or if you think. You know, Ruben Diaz coming back for this game, he's going to see a lot of the ball in the position that he plays. You could have a look at him in the 90 plus passes market as well. Yeah, plenty of options there for your bet builders. It is worth bearing in mind you can get a completely free £2 bet to use on bet builders on any Premier League game from the 1st to the 2nd of October. T's and C's in the description 18 plus. See gambleaware.org. So if we were going to put together a bet builder for the Manchester Derby, Mark, how would you start us off? Um, I'll just play the, the cheat code really, which is the, the Mark Stinchcombe special, um, I believe, for the bet builder, uh, Erling Haaland to yep. score or assist. Um, <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, so uh, it's just a, a nice and easy one to get us started. Yep. Uh, Jake, I'm going to go to you next. Um, just throw Man City to win in there. Uh, I think we all agree that the price is fair. I think we're, we're all expecting City to win. We think that the price is 
perhaps not backable as a single, but if you're throwing it in a bet builder, you might be able to get it boosted. So City to win, Haaland to be involved in a goal. Jason? Yeah, I was either going to go the City win route or Scott McTominay to be booked, so happy to put Scott McTominay in. And those last four matches as well, he's played the full 90 minutes, which is always an important factor in any player-based leg you're considering putting in your bet builder. You want them to be on the pitch that you get the value of it. So 15-8 to for the reasons outlined, I think it's a very, very fair price for Scott McTominay to be booked. Always nice to have a sprinkling of violence in any derby game. Leeds United face Aston Villa, both sides inconsistent so far. Jake, what's the angle here? Uh, I'm quite sweet on Leeds this weekend, uh, 2.44. I think that's a very backable price when we look at the uh, the underlying data and, and the potential absentees for Villa. Um, so yeah, Leeds, we, we, everyone watched them absolutely hammer Chelsea a couple of, well, probably what was it two months ago now? How many you wouldn't remember you've by? been on holiday so long. You've got no Correct. concept of time. Yeah, yeah, we'll move past that one, <laughs> Kev. Um, yeah, they, they, they've shown to be really, really strong at Ellen Road, particularly at home, particularly under under Jesse Marsh. Uh, the underlying process is taking a real leap forward as well, um, particularly in home games. The main issue we had with Leeds was the defensive process was all over the place, and that seems to have steadied somewhat. They've allowed just one expected goal against per game across those three home matches. Racked up one and a half expected goals for per game. Um, and Villa have been abysmal travellers so far this season. I know it's only it's early, they played three away matches, but Bournemouth, Crystal Palace and Arsenal, they've come away with no wins, no draws, just three defeats. Um, and I guess the main issue I have is, is not so much the results, it's actually the performances. They've created next to nothing um, on average over those three games, just 0.6 expected goals for per game. Uh, and they've shipped an absolute bucket load, um, 2.1 expected goals against per game across those three matches. Arsenal and, and Crystal Palace just ran riot. They created chances at will against uh, this Villa backline. And as I said, that backline, the general starting backline is is Cash, um, Carlos, probably Mings and then Dinya. It seems as though they're going to be missing three of those four this weekend with Cash and Dinya uh, and obviously Carlos is a long-term absentee. So that's only um, added more sort of confidence behind backing Leeds this weekend and I think the price is absolutely fair I don't think I wasn't really high on Villa pre-season I think there were a lot of people expecting them to be challenging for Europe I never thought that was going to be the case um, and yeah that, I, their opening exchanges have only really reiterated my, my feeling on that one and uh, I, I do think that Leeds are probably a, on par if not a slightly better team than Villa at this moment in time it doesn't help when you sign a top-quality centre-back and then he gets injured for pretty much the rest of the campaign. Jason, are you similarly pro-leads? Jesse Marsh seems to be bedding in what he wants in terms of how he wants them to play, that kind of Red Bull style. Guys like Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson know exactly what that style's all about, having played for Red Bull clubs before. As a Man United fan, I don't think I'll ever class myself as pro-leads. But, <laughs> that's true I should have I, thought of that really I definitely echo yeah absolutely everything Jake has, has said he's ticked the boxes there um, just to look at the match price like again we alluded to it in the North London Derby the fact that Leeds are bigger than that 5-4 to four is kind of saying Villa for this game are rated as a better team and it's the home advantage that's just having Leeds actually going off as favourites and I just disagree with that especially over you know, the rolling XG versus expectations for the last six games. Leeds versus my ratings are, are performing better than what I'm pricing them up. And Aston Villa, particularly in an attacking sense that Jake has alluded to, are, are just just really, really poor. Um, so as a matchup for this weekend, and given the Aston Villa injury concerns, I, I think it's one of the stronger 
bets if you're looking for a straight out match bet to put in an ACA this weekend I think you're getting a good price on Leeds and that that performance against Chelsea was okay Chelsea had their issues but like Leeds still went and did what they did um, yeah, so steamrolled them didn't they yeah, yeah absolutely so for the for the match I'd probably be uh, on the side of Leeds for sure yeah, just for the match, not just for, for the anything match. Yeah, else, yeah, just yeah, to underline yeah. that. Uh, now it's time for Mark My Words, where our very own Mark O'Hare, you see what I did there, picks a European nap for us from the weekend. Mark, you've got us on the uh, TGV. We are speeding to France. <laughs> yeah, Brittany, um, Lorient taking on Lille uh, on Sunday afternoon. I think this is a midday start. Lorient being... Uh, probably one of the biggest surprise stories, not just in France this season, but across Europe. Um, they finished 16th last season, sold their best player in the summer and saw a number of key players depart. They they didn't renew the, the manager's contract either, um, who'd won the promotion and kept them in the top flight for two seasons. There was uh, plenty suggesting that they would be scrapping for survival with four teams going down in, in Liga 1 this season. But um, they brought in Reggie Labrie, who's basically had no experience as a head coach at senior level, but he's been famed for his work with youth teams and he's taken on the role superbly, really. He's brought through a young and dynamic team and Lorient are playing without fear and playing with real intent uh, when possession is turned over. They're still quite happy to play on the counter-attack, but they've been really proactive and, and play with intent when the ball is in possession. And Terra Moffi's been enjoying a great lease of life in forward areas. Um, and... Uh, yeah, they, they've been looking really good. They're, they're, they're up there in the top six on merit right now. and uh, They do still have vulnerabilities, uh, particularly from set pieces. The goalkeeping situation is still pretty questionable. But going forward, Lorient have been a joy to, to watch right now. And um, six of their eight games so far have featured over two and a half goals. Six of their eight games have also featured both teams as score winners. And matches are averaging 3.63 goals. Five of those eight games going over three and a half as well. So if you look at the XG figures, their averages are still very much uh, above the 3.0 mark, suggesting that matches are open and expansive. And I expect a, a repeat, really, when Lille come to town under Paolo Fonseca. Uh, all eight of their matches so far this season have seen both teams scoring. Seven of eight have gone overs. Their matches are averaging 3.24 expected goals and 4.0 goals per game. Uh, four of the eight have gone over three and a half as well. So put the two teams' records together and you basically got over two and a half goals banking in 13 of 16 league matches and both teams to score in 14 of those 16 uh, with matches averaging 3.82 goals per game. So uh, as we've talked about throughout the season so far, Ligue 1 has been the place to be for goals on the continent so far this season and I expect this game to, to follow those similar um, patterns really, over two and a half goals, 1.8 on the exchange. Uh, I think that's a really appealing price. Yeah, perfect combination for Mark O'Hare so far in Liga. Lots of goals and lots of red cards. An insane number of red cards compared to some of the other major leagues. Now, on Monday, there is a massively important East Midlands derby between rock-bottom Leicester City and second-bottom Nottingham Forest. Jason, the Leicester boss, Brendan Rodgers, looks like a broken man at the moment. And there are even people suggesting that his press conferences are those of a man who actually wants to be sacked. Uh, Steve Cooper struggling to get what's nearly an entirely new squad to gel. Only the 600 summer signings uh, over the course of the transfer window. It's a tough one for both of these clubs at the moment because Forrest's morale has got to have been hurt by collapses against Fulham and, you know, games they would have possibly expected to win Bournemouth as well. They would soon nil up and somehow manage to blow it. But Leicester, given the quality they have all over the place at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, 
it's probably too early in the season to call it the relegation six-pointer, but in terms of the next sprint of games between now and the start of the World Cup, a win for either side here can really, really set the tone of, of putting some points on the board in the next couple of games. I think the match prices, first and foremost, are right for this game. I think the fact it's a derby, we've accounted a little bit for it. The boat in bad runs of form, obviously. But I, I think the bigger issues, longer term, I think are on the forest side. I, they're they're favourites for relegation at the moment, even though Leicester obviously only have one point. But Steve Cooper alluded to himself in the interviews, and interviews are really important uh, for getting an insight into what's happening um, from the outside. Like he said, the mistakes they were making was essentially from teams that just haven't played together, players that haven't played with each other. And how quick can they get to that, that they get that gel and cut out those mistakes and stop losing games from very good winning positions. So Forrest, I'd have serious concerns about what they can do. Like I said, when you sign 600 players, it's very hard to make a team out of that. And they need to do it now. They can't be waiting until Christmas to do this. Whereas Leicester, I'd have a little bit more confidence in them turning around. Brendan Rodgers as a manager, absolutely is going to be deflated. I'm sure he's doing everything. I'm sure he's making tea and toast in the middle of the night, every night, trying to figure <laughs> this out. 24-7. 24-7. So he's put on will, six stone just in toast. There'll be, there'll be no stones left unturned in trying to turn this Leicester ship around. It's mad. They're 2-1 for relegation on the Betfair Exchange. I don't think they've ever been that short since the season just before they won the Premier League. Definitely weren't that short last season. Definitely not when they were challenging for top four. I don't think Leicester want to sack him. There's obviously a financial aspect to that as well. James Madison, in his interview after the Spurs game, spoke very well about the Leicester performance. If they cut out those mistakes, I think they're definitely better than than a bottom bottom of the league team. They're definitely mid-table, at least, with the quality of players that they have. So the question is, can Leicester cut out these mistakes? And if they do, I think they'll pick up the points and the results that they'll need that there won't be two to one for relegation when the international break comes around. So it's a fantastic opportunity for Leicester to get a win on Monday night. I think the match prices are right. So if you're watching this game, the best angle I could give you for a bet would be James Madison to score or assist. He's got three goals already this season. He's got an assist. He takes the corners. Great opportunity that if he's not scoring, he's setting someone else up in the box. He's even money to have a score or assist. That's really good price for a team that's five to six to win the game and are expected to be down that end of the pitch more than in their own half. Uh, even money for that. If you wanted to tag it on to the Leicester win, you'd get seven to four. But I'd be happy enough, James Madison, even money to score or assist as the best tip. And for Leicester to start building towards where where they should be, given the quality that they have. Now, Madison in some of the games has been outstanding. Jake, similar lines, pro Leicester here. Uh, just pro entertainment, really. Um, I think this will be a lot. Lovely, of goals. aren't we all pro entertainment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lovely, I think, lovely I think, notion. I think Monday night is uh, is going to be a good one. Uh, but just touching on Leicester, I know Jason is is perhaps you know he's not quite dismissing them in terms of relegation candidates, but thinking that they'll pull well clear. Uh, I've got a slightly different opinion on that. I think they'll be in and around the bottom three for most of the season. Um, I agree that individual quality they've, they've got plenty of it, but. The underlying numbers they put up, this is no, this is like seeing them down there, this is no surprise at all. Last season, they finished mid table, but they ranked as the third worst team based on expected points. Uh, and so far this season, they ranked third bottom based on expected points. So this is a consistently bad underlying performances. Um, and we thought last season there was loads of caveats with injuries, etc. 
But this time around, I know they've lost key players, which has only added to that, really. Nothing's really changed. We've not seen anything change. Defensively, they are still an absolute mess. Um, and ultimately, unless something does change, then these kind of performances will continue. Um, I will just throw a caveat to my own com- uh, my own argument there in the sense that they've had a really tough start to the season fixture-wise. Um, in the first I think, six or seven they've played, they played Arsenal, Chelsea, United and Spurs. So they, they, they could have had easiest fixtures to get going. But the defensive processes still remain the same, whether they played against a Brighton or a Southampton. It's not really improved at all. So I do have major concerns about Leicester, uh, particularly with everything that's going off off the pitch as well, which suggests that there might not be any incomings in January because of you know struggling for, for cash, etc. Um, but in this game, I just think that these two teams are going to play out an absolute humdinger. I think it's going to be a end-to-end. There's going to be plenty of goals. You only have to look at recent uh, results. Leicester, they've had a 6-2, a 5-2, a 4-2, a couple of 2-1s in there, and Forrest are coming off the back of successive 3-2s. And, uh, and ultimately, these two teams are the are two of the worst teams defensively in the Premier League. And they both really play attack brand of football, uh, and they've got really good attacking individuals. So I think we could be in for a, a quite a few goals. Throw in the fact that it is fairly, not a six-pointer, but it's kind of a must-win, particularly for Leicester. Uh, and I think both teams to score an over two and a half is a very, very good bet at 1.84. Well, this football season, get a helping hand with Betfair's popular bet builder. Easily add our most popular or fan favourite football selections to your bet slip in just one tap. T's and C's in the description. 18 plus. See gambleaware.org. No football-only better weekend would be complete without a trip to the Norwegian elite Syrian. So, Mark O'Hare, take us there. <laughs> um, yeah, Sunday afternoon, Sandy Ford take on Salzburg. Um, of course Sandy Ford <laughs> are in the relegation playoff places. Uh, as we sort of turn for home, there's seven rounds left in Norway. Uh, and Sandy Ford need to be careful, basically, because Christiansund have, have really sort of found form recently and closed the gap between themselves and automatic relegation and that playoff play. Uh, to six points um, Sandy Ford they're within sort of touching distance uh, of the two teams above them uh, while Sarpsborg uh, their opponents on Sunday <clears throat> they're only six points ahead um, so victory here for the home team would really bring Sarpsborg back into that dogfight um, and they've got some difficult away days still to play so everything really to play for in, in this game uh, particularly in the battle for survival too and uh, it's just got to be of goals um, it's a high scoring league I'm sure everyone knows Norway's top flight is 3.18 goals per game, 64% going over two and a half, 62% seeing both teams scoring. Uh, my XG model suggests the right price around over two and a half goals and BTTS would be around 1.5, which kind of goes to show uh, what these two teams are all about. Um, but we can add uh, basically, if you, if you actually went to the, the market, you get 1.6 on that. But if you actually add a goal to be scored in both halves via the bet builder, two over two and a half goals and both teams to score. You're getting a leap up to 1.8 and that's a really appealing option for me considering these two teams' records. Um, Basically, these two teams are involved in the most goals per game. In the top flight in Norway, 3.87 and 3.78 respectively. In terms of overs, they've combined to see 37 of 46 fixtures go over two and a half goals. That's 80%. Sandy Ford have actually seen 21 of 23 go over two and a half goals. And BTTS hit rates, they're both hitting 65% and 70%. Combined to keep just five clean sheets in 46 games. And if you look at their goal scored record, they've scored in 20 of 22 
home and away matches respectively. So um, as well, there's just been a tendency for both of these two teams to start very strongly, very few nil-nil first halves. Uh, and actually the reverse game was 4-3 and it was 2-2 at half time. so pretty wild stuff. So I think everything's kind of suggesting that this game is going to be a bit of a shootout in the battle to survive. Both teams in relative form at the minute as well. So uh, I just think that increase just by including a goal to be scored in both halves is significant enough to be involved in this uh, in the show. I love the way you said, of course, everyone knows uh, that the Norwegian league is a very high scoring league. Talking about it <laughs> and you were nodding cafe. along. <laughs> they're, they're talking about it in, well, I know that, but I'm sure they're talking about it in cafes and coffee shops all over the place. Uh, the start of the World Cup, just a few weeks away, we've had a set of internationals that were encouraging for some, absolutely terrifying for others. Uh, how has it changed our view of the winner market? Has it changed it at all? Jason, Brazil are the favourites. One of the things I find really interesting, certainly the narrative coming out of the last international break, was that Brazil and Argentina seem quite settled, seem in good form. Whereas you look at France, lots of injuries, lots of weird results in the Nations League, doubts about whether Deschamps has still got it in terms of being able to find the right system. Is Giroud going to be taken as a backup to Benzema or is he going to have a Gallic shrug and decide to sulk and not play. So that's all over the place. You've got Germany, who I was at Wembley, and I thought they had periods against England where they were in control, but didn't really threaten enough. And then just completely collapsed at 2-0 up, which is a big worry in terms of their defensive quality. England, we know all the pressure that's on Gareth Southgate. We know they've had an awful set of results in the Nations League. Do you go along with that, that there are big questions about some of the leading European sides? Yes, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, in a statement, there's big questions about European sides. Um, so of all the teams you listed, someone's going to win it or maybe someone outside of it. So Brazil, Argentina, obviously in very good form at the moment. It's very hard for, for traders, for odds compilers to compare the South American teams to the European teams at the moment. The uh, UEFA Nations League has been a brilliant help, not perfect, but brilliant in helping us gauge what the market makes between the European teams. But where Brazil and Argentina slot into that is quite difficult. So if you had the best 11 for Brazil against the best 11 against France, I think France probably still the best to, to win that one-off game. So therefore, I wouldn't have... Brazil in that as the favourites and Argentina, you can judge them to Brazil and, and make appropriate adjustments. But what has happened in the last 12 months is Brazil have come to the front of the market and have brought Argentina with them as well. So the South American sides have been favoured more in the last 12 months than the European sides, probably because European sides are, are beating each other. There is also the factor as well. It's in Qatar. Will that suit other nations more so than others? So Brazil, Argentina, they've been well-backed. They've been the most-backed teams over the international breaks for singles in the outright book. So they're well-liked by punters, well-liked by the market. The European teams all have their individual issues. France, I think the exact quote after Switzerland was that Deschamps had shit the bed. He's gone with a 3-4-1-2. It was a disaster. He won the World Cup playing a 4-2-3-1. If Kante is back fit, Babel on Pogba, but definitely can't they if you can play the 4 2 3 1 in the World Cup and step away from this kind of 3 4 1 2 nonsense that he's gone with and got bad results when he has, then France for me should be favourites to win the World Cup. Just it's unbelievable talent that they have. Germany, 
things can happen. You can have a bad period of 20 minutes. Ireland against Armenia had a bad period as well on Tuesday night. Like things can go wrong. And if it happens in the knockout stage of World Cup, it can be fatal. But what I like about Germany is Hansi Flick. He's done there before. He was part of the backroom staff when they won the World Cup in 2014, which will be big experience that will take them through to this tournament. And I think the price in Germany is actually one of the backable prices out there. They're about 11 to 1 maybe on the Betfair exchange. England, I have massive concerns about England. I watched the game against... I think you're the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not great insight there, but... Trying to play that that system that they did against Italy, it just did not suit. If you're going to play that back three you with 3-4-2-1, three, four, uh, three, you need to know the patterns, how to play out from the back and the runs to be making. And it's not something that you can put together in an international break with lads that don't play with each other regularly. It's a very hard thing, and probably that's what France suffer with similar issues, to try and implement that back three. I don't think it'll work. And if it's only been done to accommodate Harry Maguire, it's a massive concern as well. England, I, I said it in the Euros, I think if they had gone for it, they would have won it. And Southgate is too conservative. And we see teams be conservative. Portugal won the Euros being conservative. Greece won it being conservative. And Portugal are going to try and do likewise in this World Cup. So it is that thing like, you know, do you play conservative and hope that you come out the right side of variance? Or if you're a good team, do you go and grab the game and go and win it? And I think that's what France can do. I think that's what Brazil can do. I think that's what England should try and do. But Southgate isn't going to change now at this stage. And therefore, I don't think, I, I just can't see England winning this World Cup, to be honest. Well, Jason's just given a new meaning to the phrase keeping a clean sheet in football when you think about what Didier Deschamps did. Uh, Mark, how do you view it? I, I look at the list and think, I guess you, you, you look at the main contenders, but you also think who could sneak through, who could have a good run. The Netherlands look good to me. I think there's quality in the spine of that team. I worry a little bit about the goalkeeper, Mark Flecken, because I'm not sure he's elite quality. But you look at De Ligt and Van Dijk, you look at De Jong in midfield. They've got lots of options in attack. I know Memphis isn't playing a lot at the moment, so that's a concern. But at least he'll be fresh for the World Cup. I don't think their group's too bad. What do you make of the Dutch? And in general, who are you fancying to win it? Well, I tried to do a lot of prep when I was away. And, you know, the Nations League is fantastic. But what we learned was was not a huge amount. A lot, a lot of European nations are, are, you know, have flaws at the minute. And there's no obvious standout candidate to win the World Cup. And I think this, probably more than most World Cups in, in my lifetime at least, is looking like the, the most difficult to, to pinpoint, really. Um, it's a competition that has been relatively dominated by European nations over the last two decades or so. And there has been obviously a showing from Brazil, Argentina or Uruguay here and again. And I can understand the, the growing clamour to be with Brazil or Argentina because of their form and because of their squads and the way in which they're playing. But there's legitimate you know, concerns about the fact that they've not been tested outside of their own continent since the last World Cup, really. So it's very difficult to read or have a, a strong barometer on where those two teams are outside of South America. So... Um, yeah, I mean, you'd say the likes of, of France and England, two teams well fancied by the market over the last two years have had wobbles uh, in the past six months. Um, I think at the Euros, uh, the way in which Spain performed was 
were far and above expectations at the start of the tournament and with um, with Luis Enrique as a head coach, you'd, you'd fancy them to go strongly. But um, I think when they exited the Euros, I thought that's a team I want to be with at the World Cup. But, you know, you watch their progress since then. It's been pretty mundane at best. And, you know, we talk about Portugal. They've arguably got a squad to match some of the elite nations in this competition. Are they being held back by Ronaldo's continued sort of involvement and inclusion? Santos's pragmatism as well. We've touched on Germany. Then there's the Dutch. And yeah, I've got massive concerns over the goalkeeping situation. I do think they are over-reliant on Depay. And I actually think they're lacking in star quality in forward areas, despite having plenty of options in, in those kind of forward roles. Um, Lou van Gaal's done a, a fantastic job in terms of transforming them to be where they are, are at right now. But do they have the quality to sort of go the extra mile? And uh, you look elsewhere, we've not touched on Belgium. I think it's pretty horrifying to see some of those sort of old heads in defence still being reeled out in terms of their first 11. So, yeah, I think every nation right now has plenty of sort of flaws or question marks surrounding them. What I would say about England, uh, Portugal and France in particular is Jason touched on it really there about sort of conservatism and pragmatism. That has been a popular sort of theme for winning major tournaments in recent history, not just the Euros, but also World Cups as well. Um, and, you know, it might not be how everyone wants to see, to see football played. Uh, quite often the best teams don't win these major tournaments and that's because luck and fortune does play a huge part in a strong defence is just as good or if not better than a star-studded attack. So, um I wouldn't completely dismiss England's chances just because their style of football is poor. There's much bigger issues at work, really, with England going into the World Cup rather than the style. But um, I think for France in particular, and even Portugal, we didn't see it in the Euros, but I think there's an ability there to grind, but also the star quality you need in forward areas to win tight matches too. So um, whilst neither have pulled up trees at all in the past six months, I wouldn't be discounting them just because things have started to go a little bit or appear a little bit, appear a little bit stale uh, just in the last month or so. And I think one thing we have to learn as well, if we're going to these major tournaments, teams in fantastic form or, or teams in poor form over the last two years, because the samples are so small, we can sometimes read a bit too much into it and, and teams are capable of sort of turning out massive performances or, or flopping as well. So uh, to be honest, <laughs> to answer your question in a roundabout way, no one really at the top of the market is appealing to me right now. I think Brazil have come to the forefront of my mind, but they're just too short to really support at the minute at those prices. I agree with Jason. I think France, if they do play to their full potential, are the best team on the planet right now from an international sense. But I've been looking towards trying to get teams kind of at bigger prices on side if I can. I still think Denmark are always dangerous as that kind of best of the best of the bunch outside of the, the leading lights. Um I wanted to be with Croatia in some way, but their draw suggests that they're going to meet either Spain or Germany in the last 16, which is is very difficult, of course, as well. Um, uh, and then from there, I thought Switzerland and Serbia, whoever comes through from, from that group alongside Brazil, could easily sort of pull up a few trees. Um, Swiss, Switzerland, I think, have, have always been a, a kind of team who can't really be able to get past the last 16, but I do like their squad. I do think they're more than capable uh, of pulling off a result as they proved in the Euros against France. Uh, well, that's got Serbia. to help psychologically, hasn't it? Having beaten France in a major knockout game. Yeah, 100%. And also the performance last week against Spain as well. So um, I think it can absolutely help. And I think they are dangerous, uh, but Serbia are in the same group, you know, so. That's an interesting match. I'm really looking forward to that game too. Serbia, very much an attack-minded team and, and will really go for the for the throat there. But whether they're, they're able to sort of keep things uh, in check, uh, you know, it's anyone's guess really. So, yeah, it's it's a fascinating competition. I went into the... So you're saying Japan to win it, Mark. <laughs> this is what you're going to finish with, isn't it? You're just kind of reeling us in and you're going to go, Japan are going to win it. Or Ecuador. Yeah. 
right now, Denmark are the only team I've got real sort of faith in to sort of play above their price. And even still, that price has collapsed in the last 12 months. You're getting 30 to 1 on the sports book, around about 36.0 on the exchange. It's nothing fancy. Uh, I think they can come through a, a relatively tough group. They've got France and there. Tunisia are no easy meet either. They'll, they'll be very dogged in that match. But um, uh, yeah, in terms of the, the leading candidates, I still need to do a bit of study to see who I really want to sort of pin, pin my colours to. I feel like we've broken Mark with that question. <laughs> uh, just just quickly, Jake, just to finish off, actually, I want to ask you about quite a specific set of markets, which is something we have on the sports book. You can back who you think will start for England in that first game in the group stage. And also there is a specific Harry Maguire market right now. 1.67 to start for England, 2.1, I think, for him not to be in that starting eleven. And I'm really intrigued by his situation because I was at Wembley for the game against Germany and the, the, the boos when his name was read out in the lineup were very loud. And you just feel like if he's not, uh, Gareth Southgate is a, is a huge fan of his still, ha, has backed him to the hilt. But if he's not playing for United much between now and then, you just wonder, is he actually going to be in that starting eleven? How do you see that? Um, I think most of us England fans would probably not want to see him in there, um, particularly when you've got the likes of Tamori sat on the sideline who has proven that he's more than capable of playing at this level. But knowing Southgate, we've seen him for you know four or five years now. He has his favourites and he picks his favourites. Um, and that, you know, it worked at the Euros, um, but it could be uh, really detrimental to England at this World Cup, particularly when it almost feels like we're at a stage where uh, it's almost like the change of the guard, where the older players, your Hendersons, are uh, being replaced by your Bellinghams. You know, at the, at the back, you've got Trippier who's, and Walker who are maybe ready to pass the torch to, to uh, Rhys James and Trent Alexander-Arnold. But... Um, yeah, I think I think that he will stick to his guns, stick with his favourites, and he'll pick Maguire to start in that opening game. Much to, as I said, the detriment of, of potentially the team. And um, I do feel sorry for the likes of Tamori and, and Guehi, who have been called up but given very little chance to actually prove that they're more that they're capable of playing in this um, in this team. And and the other frustrating thing with England and particularly Southgate is, I think Jason touched on it, playing a back three is. You know, you've got players there. A, you've got limited time to work with those players and implement tactics to, to, to help them understand the system and get the best out of it. And B, your players you're picking, they barely none of them play a back three for their club, so they're not used to playing in that way anyway. Everyone plays a back four nowadays, don't they, apart from pretty much Spurs and maybe Chelsea. Uh, but how many of those players would play in, in England's first 11? Um, and I think that's why we had so much success for the most part of the Euros, because we did play a, a back four uh, and, and it gave us a chance to get more quality attacking players in um, but yeah going back to your original question I think Southgate will stick to his favourites it's you know you know those those players are going to be in there it's going to be Maguire Stones if they're fit it's going to be Pickford in the net um, you know you've got Kane down the middle Sterling's going to be playing uh, he's not going to be playing Trent <laughs> he just doesn't seem to like him whatsoever which is um, a little bit annoying how, how we can say that Trippier is a, a better player than Trent um, at this moment in time I don't really understand but Trent's not a conventional it... fullback is he that, that this is the weird thing it's like it's like giving an incredible vintage red wine to a teetotaler he, he doesn't know what to do with it so <laughs> yeah bang on yeah. he's just not gonna put him 
in a conventional fullback position because it's not how Trent plays for Liverpool. It's not remotely how he plays. And defensively, we know what he's like. So it, it's a tough one, isn't it? It is a bit of a tough one, but we, we saw, um, or we've seen anyway, through this Nations League campaign, how we've really struggled to create chances. You know, we've, I think we scored one non-penalty goal before scoring three against Germany. Um, and who is one of the best creators in the Premier League? It's Trent Alexander-Arnold. So you have to find a way, when you've got a generational talent like that, you've got to find a way to get the best out of him and get him in the team. Um, you'd think that on paper, Trent at right back being a real creative force and Kane in the box is an absolute match made in heaven because Kane scores, I think he's four of his six Premier League goals this season have been with his head already. So he's really good when it comes to attacking crosses. Um, and it just seems as though he, he just either, yeah, he either he maybe it's, he's not got time to work with him and, and implement into systems, but um, I, I think it's more that he's very stubborn and he, he, he trusts, he's got a trust in players that, that have. Um, not really let him down. The likes of your Mason Mount, who you know, scored a great goal against Germany, and I do like him as a player. I think Mount's 1.83 to start that first group game, which I thought was interesting. I thought that was quite a, quite a decent seems a big price, price, actually. Yeah, it seems a big price. Um, but the, the caveat to that being, if he plays a, a back five, then you've only yeah. got a couple of midfield spots. Will, yeah, would he true. be playing in behind Kane? If he, playing, if he plays a 4-3-3, then I absolutely can see him playing. Um, maybe Rice as a pivot and Bellingham and Mount as the two in front of him, but um, yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's a frustrating one really because um, we're getting to the point now where this crop of players are so good. Like the group of players that we've got on his hands is, is probably the big. It's probably the best squad that we'll ever take to a World Cup, um, or the best group of players we've ever had to, to pick from. And I think the manager's slightly holding them back a bit. Mm, similar problems with Portugal and Fernando Santos. Um, it's really interesting to see what Southgate does going forward. But of course, it's worth remembering that he managed to get them to a European Championship final, got them to the semi-final of a World Cup. So he's eclipsed the likes of Fabio Capello and Sven Joran Eriksson, who, of course, have been very experienced and successful coaches. That's all we have time for on this edition of Football Only Better. Please do remember to gamble responsibly. We're going to have loads of preview content, by the way, ahead of the World Cup. And once it gets started, in Qatar. We're going to be back lots of times uh, to look ahead to games, to look back on games as well with the Football Only Better team. Lots of other Betfair shows for you to enjoy. We've got Racing Only Better, NFL Only Better, Cricket Only Better as well. From Jason, from Jake, from Mark and from me. It's goodbye for now.